Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town, the delightfully whimsical small town tale from Stephen Leacock. This is the 11th title in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town. Chapter 4. The Ministrations of the Reverend Mr. Drone The Church of England in Mariposa is on a side street, where the maple trees are thickest, a little up the hill from the heart of the town. The trees above the church, and the grass plot that was once the cemetery, till they made the new one, the necropolis over the brow of the hill, fill out the whole corner. Down behind the church, with only the driving shed and a lane between, is the rectory. It is a little brick house with odd angles. There is a hedge and a little gate, and a weeping ash tree with red berries. At the side of the rectory, churchward, is a little grass lawn with low hedges, and at the side of that, two wild plum trees that are practically always in white blossom. Underneath them is a rustic table and chairs, and it is here that you may see the rural dean drone, the incumbent of the Church of England, sitting in the checkered light of the plum trees that is neither sun nor shadow. Generally, you will find him reading, and when I tell you that at the end of the grass plot where the hedge is highest, there is a yellow beehive with seven bees that belong to Dean Drone, you will realize that it is only fitting that the Dean is reading in the Greek. For what better could a man be reading beneath the blossom of the plum trees within the very sound of the bees than the pastorals of Theocritus? The light trash of modern romance might put a man to sleep in such a spot, but with such food for reflection as Theocritus, a man may safely close his eyes and muse on what he reads without fear of dropping into slumber. Some men, I suppose, terminate their education when they leave their college. (laughs) Not so, Dean Drone. I have often heard him say that if he couldn't take a book in the Greek out on the lawn in a spare half hour, he would feel lost. It's a certain activity of the brain that must be still somehow. The dean, too, seemed to have a native feeling for the Greek language. I have often heard people who might sit with him on the lawn ask him to translate some of it, but he always refused. One couldn't translate it, he said. It lost so much in the translation that it was better not to try. It was far wiser not to attempt it. If you undertook to translate it, there was something gone, something missing immediately. I believe that many classical scholars feel this way and like to read the Greek just as it is without the hazard of trying to put it into so poor a medium as English, so that when Dean Drone said that he simply couldn't translate it, I believe he was perfectly sincere. Sometimes, indeed, he would read it aloud. That was another matter. Whenever, for example, Dr. Gallagher—I mean, of course, old Dr. Gallagher, not the young doctor— 
who was always out in the country in the afternoon, would come over and bring his latest Indian relics to show to the dean. The latter always read to him a passage or two. As soon as the doctor laid his tomahawk on the table, the dean would reach for his theocritus. I remember that on the day when Dr. Gallagher brought over the Indian skull that they had dug out of the railway embankment and placed it on the rustic table, the dean read to him so long from Theocritus that the doctor, I truly believe, dozed off in his chair. The dean had to wait and fold his hands with the book across his knee and close his eyes till the doctor should wake up again and the skull was on the table between them, and from above the plum blossoms fluttered down till they made flakes on it as white as Dr. Gallagher's hair. I don't want you to suppose that the Reverend Mr. Drone spent the whole of his time under the trees. Not at all. In point of fact, the rector's life was one round of activity which he himself might deplore, but was powerless to prevent. He had hardly sat down beneath the trees of an afternoon after his midday meal when there was the infant class at three, and after that, with scarcely an hour between, the mother's auxiliary at five, and the next morning, the book club, and that evening, the Bible study class, and the next morning, the early workers' guild at eleven-thirty. The whole week was like that. And if one found time to sit down for an hour or so to recuperate, it was the most one could do. After all, if a busy man spends the little bit of leisure that he gets in advanced classical study, there is surely no harm in it. I suppose, take it all in all, there wasn't a busier man than the rural dean among the Anglican clergy of the diocese. If the dean ever did snatch a half-day from his incessant work, he spent it in fishing. But not always that, for as likely as not, instead of taking a real holiday, he would put in the whole afternoon amusing the children and the boys that he knew by making kites and toys and clockwork steamboats for them. It was fortunate for the dean that he had the strange interest and aptitude for mechanical devices which he possessed, or otherwise this kind of thing would have been too cruel an imposition. But the Reverend Mr. Drone had a curious liking for machinery. I think I never heard him preach a better sermon than the one on aeroplanes. Lo, what now see you on high? Jeremiah too. So it was that he spent two whole days making a kite with Chinese wings for Teddy Moore, the photographer's son, and closed down the infant class for forty-eight hours so that Teddy Moore should not miss the pleasure of flying it, or rather seeing it flown. It is foolish to trust a Chinese kite to the hands of a young child. There was no end to the things that Mr. Drone could make, and always for the children. Even when he was making the sand clock for poor little Willie Yodel, who died, you know, the dean went right on with it and gave it to another child with just the same pleasure. Death, you know, to the clergy is a different thing from what it is to us. The dean and Mr. Gingham used often to speak of it as they walked through the long grass of the new cemetery, the necropolis. And when your Sunday walk is to your wife's grave— 
as the dean's was, perhaps it seems different to anybody's. The Church of England Church, I said, stood close to the rectory, a tall, sweeping church, and inside a great reach of polished cedar beams that ran to the point of the roof. There used to stand on the same spot the little stone church that all the grown-up people in Mariposa still remember, a quaint little building in red and gray stone. About it was the old cemetery, but that was all smoothed out later into the grass plot around the new church, and the headstones laid out flat, and no new graves have been put there for ever so long. But the Mariposa children still walk round and read the headstones lying flat in the grass and look for the old ones, because some of them are ever so old, forty or fifty years back. Nor are you to think, from all this, that the dean was not a man with serious perplexities. You could easily convince yourself of the contrary. For if you watched the Reverend Mr. Drone, as he sat reading in the Greek, you would notice that no very long period ever passed without his taking up a sheet or two of paper that lay between the leaves of the Theocritus and that were covered close with figures. And these the dean would lay upon the rustic table, and he would add them up forwards and backwards, going first up the column and then down it to see that nothing had been left out, and then down it again to see what it was that must have been left out. Mathematics, you will understand, were not the dean's forte. They never were the forte of the men who had been trained at the little Anglican college with the clipped hedges and the cricket ground, where Rupert Drone had taken the gold medal in Greek fifty-two years ago. You will see the medal at any time lying there in its open box on the rectory table, in case of immediate need. Any of the drone girls, Lillian or Jocelyn or Theodora, would show it to you. But as I say, mathematics were not the rector's forte, and he blamed for it in a Christian spirit, you will understand, the memory of his mathematical professor, and often he spoke with great bitterness. I have often heard him say that in his opinion the colleges ought to dismiss of course, in a Christian spirit, all the professors who were not, in the most reverential sense of the term, fit for their jobs. No doubt, many of the clergy of the diocese had suffered more or less just as the dean had from lack of mathematical training. But the dean always felt that his own case was especially to be lamented. For, you see, if a man is trying to make a model aeroplane, for a poor family in the lower part of the town, and he is brought to a stop by the need of reckoning the coefficient of torsion of cast-iron rods, it shows plainly enough that the colleges are not truly filling their divine mission. But the figures that I speak of were not those of the model airplane. These were far more serious. Night and day they had been with the rector now for the best part of ten years, and they grew, if anything, more intricate. If, for example, you tried to reckon the debt of a church, a large church, with a great sweep of polished cedar beams inside, for the special glorification of the all-powerful, 
and with imported tiles on the roof for the greater glory of heaven, and with stained-glass windows for the exaltation of the all-seeing. If, I say, you try to reckon up the debt on such a church and figure out its interest and its present worth, less a fixed annual payment, it makes a pretty complicated sum. Then, if you try to add to this the annual cost of insurance and deduct from it three-quarters of a stipend year by year, and then suddenly remember that three-quarters is too much because you have forgotten the boarding-school fees of the littlest of the drones, including French as an extra. She must have it. All the older girls did. You have got a sum that pretty well defies ordinary arithmetic. The provoking part of it was that the dean knew perfectly well that with the help of logarithms, he could have done the thing in a moment. But at the Anglican College, they had stopped short at that very place in the book. They had simply explained that logos was a word and arithmos a number, which at the time seemed amply sufficient. So, the dean was perpetually taking out his sheets of figures and adding them upwards and downwards, and they never came the same. Very often, Mr. Gingham, who was a warden, would come and sit beside the rector and ponder over the figures, and Mr. Drone would explain that with a book of logarithms you could work it out in a moment. You would simply open the book and run your finger up the columns. He illustrated exactly the way in which the finger was moved. And there you were. Mr. Gingham said that it was a caution, and that logarithms, I quote his exact phrase, must be a terror. Very often, too, Nivens, the lawyer, who was a sidesman, and Mullins, the manager of the exchange bank, who was the chairman of the vestry, would come and take a look at the figures. But they never could make much of them because the stipend part was not a matter that one could discuss. Mullins would notice the item for a hundred dollars due on fire insurance and would say, as a businessman, that surely that couldn't be fire insurance. And the dean would say, surely not, and change it. And Mullins would say, surely there couldn't be fifty dollars for taxes, because there weren't any taxes. And the dean would admit that, of course, it couldn't be for the taxes. In fact, the truth is that the dean's figures were badly mixed, and the fault lay indubitably with the mathematical professor of two generations back. It was always Mullins' intention some day to look into the finances of the church, the more so as his father had been with Dean Drone at the little Anglican church with the cricket ground. But he was a busy man. As he explained to the rector himself, the banking business nowadays is getting to be such that a banker can hardly call even his Sunday mornings his own. Certainly Henry Mullins could not. They belonged largely to Smith's Hotel, and during the fishing season they belonged way down the lake, so far away that practically no one, unless it was George Jaffe of the Commercial Bank, could see them. But to think that all this trouble had come through the building of the new church. That was the bitterness of it. For the twenty-five years that rural Dean Drone had preached in the little stone church, it had been his one aim 
as he often put it in his sermons, to rear a larger ark in Gideon. His one hope had been to set up a greater evidence, or, very simply stated, to kindle a brighter beacon. After twenty-five years of waiting, he had been able at last to kindle it. Everybody in Mariposa remembers the building of the church. First of all, they had demolished the little stone church to make way for the newer evidence. It seemed almost a sacrilege, as the dean himself said, to lay hands on it. Indeed, it was at first proposed to take the stone of it and build it into a Sunday school as a lesser testimony. Then, when that proved impracticable, it was suggested that the stone be reverently fashioned into a wall that should stand as a token. And even when that could not be managed, the stone of the little church was laid reverently into a stone pile. Afterwards, it was devoutly sold to a building contractor, and like so much else in life, was forgotten. But the building of the church, no one, I think, will forget. The dean threw himself into the work, with his coat off and his white shirt-sleeves conspicuous among the gang that were working at the foundations. He set his hand to the shovel, himself guided the road-scraper, urging on the horses, cheering and encouraging the men, till they begged him to desist. He mingled with the stonemasons, advising, helping, and giving counsel, till they pleaded with him to rest, please. He was among the carpenters, sawing, hammering, inquiring, suggesting, until they too besought him to lay off. And he was night and day with the architect's assistance, drawing, planning, revising, till the architect told him to cut it out. So great was his activity that I doubt whether the new church would ever have been finished had not the wardens and the vestrymen insisted that Mr. Drone must take a holiday and send him on the Mackinac trip up the lakes, the only foreign travel of the dean's life. So, in due time, the new church was built, and it towered above the maple trees of Mariposa like a beacon on the hill. It stood so high that from the open steeple of it, where the bells were, you could see all the town lying at its feet, and the farmsteads to the south of it, and the railways like a double pencil line, and Lake Wissanotti spread out like a map. You could see and appreciate things from the height of the new church, such as the size and the growing wealth of Mariposa, that you never could have seen from the little stone church at all. Presently, the church was opened, and the dean preached his first sermon in it, and he called it a greater testimony, and he said that it was an earnest or first fruit of endeavor, and that it was a token or pledge, and he named it also a covenant. He said, too, that it was an anchorage and a harbor and a lighthouse as well as being a city set upon a hill and he ended by declaring it an ark of refuge, and notified them that the Bible class would meet in the basement of it on that and every other third Wednesday. In the opening months of preaching about it, the dean had called the church so often an earnest and a pledge and a guerdon and a tabernacle that I think he used to forget that it wasn't paid for. 
it was only when the agent of the building society and a representative of the Hosanna Pipe and Steam Organ Company, Limited, used to call for quarterly payments that he was suddenly reminded of the fact. Always after these men came round, the dean used to preach a special sermon on sin, in the course of which he would mention that the ancient Hebrews used to put unjust traitors to death, a thing of which he spoke with Christian serenity. I don't think that at first anybody troubled much about the debt on the church. Dean Drone's figures showed that it was only a matter of time before it would be extinguished. Only a little effort was needed, a little girding up of the loins of the congregation, and they could shoulder the whole debt and trample it under their feet. Let them but set their hands to the plow, and they could soon guide it into the deep water. Then they might furl their sails and sit every man under his own olive tree. Meantime, while the congregation was waiting to gird up its loins, the interest on the debt was paid somehow, or, when it wasn't paid, was added to the principal. I don't know whether you have had any experience with greater testimonies and with beacons set on hills. If you have, you will realize how, at first gradually and then rapidly, their position from year to year grows more distressing. What with the building loan and the organ installment and the fire insurance, a cruel charge, and the heat and light, the rector began to realize, as he added up the figures, that nothing but logarithms could solve them. Then the time came when not only the rector, but all the wardens knew, and the sidesmen knew, that the debt was more than the church could carry. Then the church knew, and the congregation knew, and at last everybody knew, and there were special collections at Easter, and special days of giving, and special weeks of tribulation, and special arrangements with the Hosanna Pipe and Steam Organ Company. And it was noticed that when the rural dean announced a service of Lenten sorrow, aimed more especially at the businessmen, the congregation had diminished by forty percent. I suppose things are just the same elsewhere. I mean, the peculiar kind of discontent that crept into the Church of England congregation in Mariposa after the setting up of the beacon. There were those who claimed that they had seen the error from the first, though they had kept quiet, as such people always do, from breadth of mind. There were those who had felt years before how it would end, but their lips were sealed from humility of spirit. What was worse was that there were others who grew dissatisfied with the whole conduct of the church. Yodel, the auctioneer, for example, narrated how he had been to the city and had gone into a service of the Roman Catholic Church. I believe, to state it more fairly, he had dropped in, the only recognized means of access to such a service. He claimed that the music that he had heard there was music, and that Outside of his profession, the chanting and intoning could not be touched. Ed Moore, the photographer, also related that he had listened to a sermon in the city, and that if anyone would guarantee him a sermon like that, he would defy you to keep him away from church. Meanwhile, failing the guarantee, he stayed away. The very doctrines were impeached. 
Some of the congregation began to cast doubts on eternal punishment, doubts so grave as to keep them absent from the Lenten services of sorrow. Indeed, Lawyer McCartney took up the whole question of the Athanasian Creed one afternoon with Joe Milligan, the dentist, and hardly left a clause of it intact. All this time, you will understand, Dean Drone kept on with his special services and leaflets. Calls and appeals went out from the Ark of Gideon like rockets from a sinking ship. More and more, with every month, the debt of the church lay heavy on his mind. At times he forgot it. At other times he woke up in the night and thought about it. Sometimes, as he went down the street from the lighted precincts of the Greater Testimony and passed the Salvation Army, praying around a naphtha lamp under the open sky, it smote him to the heart with a stab. But the congregation was wrong, I think, in imputing fault to the sermons of Dean Drone. There I do think they were wrong. I can speak from personal knowledge when I say that the rector's sermons were not only stimulating in matters of faith, but contained valuable material in regard to the Greek language, to modern machinery, and to a variety of things that should have proved of the highest advantage to the congregation. There was, I say, the Greek language. The dean always showed the greatest delicacy of feeling in regard to any translation in or out of it that he made from the pulpit. He was never willing to accept even the faintest shade of rendering different from that commonly given without being assured of the full concurrence of the congregation. Either the translation must be unanimous and without contradiction, or he could not pass it. He would pause in his sermon and would say, the original Greek is hoson, but perhaps you will allow me to translate it as equivalent to hoyon. And they did, so that if there was any fault to be found, it was purely on the side of the congregation for not entering a protest at the time. It was the same way in regard to machinery. After all, what better illustrates the supreme purpose of the all-wise than such a thing as the dynamo, or the reciprocating marine engine, or the pictures in the Scientific American? Then, too, if a man has had the opportunity to travel, and has seen the Great Lakes spread out by the hand of Providence from where one leaves the new dock at the Sound to where one arrives safe and thankful with one's dear fellow passengers in the spirit at the concrete landing stage at Mackinac, is not this fit and proper material for the construction of an analogy or illustration? Indeed, even apart from an analogy, is it not mighty interesting to narrate anyway? In any case, why should the church wardens have sent the rector on the Mackinac trip if they had not expected him to make some little return for it? I lay some stress on this point, because the criticisms directed against the Mackinac sermons always seem so unfair. If the rector had described his experiences in the crude language of the ordinary newspaper, there might, I admit, have been something unfitting about it. But he was always careful to express himself in a way that showed or—listen, or, let me explain with an example. 
It happened to be my lot some years ago, he would say, to find myself a voyager, just as one is a voyager on the sea of life, on the broad expanse of water which has been spread out to the northwest of us by the hand of Providence, at a height of 581 feet above the level of the sea. I refer, I may say, to Lake Huron. Now, how different that is from saying, I'll never forget the time I went on the Mackinac trip. The whole thing has a different sound entirely. In the same way, the dean would go on. I was voyaging on one of those magnificent leviathans of the water. I refer to the boats of the Northern Navigation Company, and was standing beside the forward rail talking with a dear brother in the faith who was journeying westward also. I may say he was a commercial traveler. And beside us was a dear sister in the spirit seated in a deck chair, while near us were two other dear souls in grace engaged in Christian pastime on the deck. I allude more particularly to the game of deck billiards. I leave it to any reasonable man whether, with that complete and fair-minded explanation of the environment, it was not perfectly proper to close down the analogy, as the rector did, with the simple words, in fact, it was an extremely fine morning. Yet there were some people, even in Mariposa, that took exception and spent their Sunday dinner time in making out that they couldn't understand what Dean Drone was talking about, and asking one another if they knew. Once, as he passed out from the doors of the greater testimony, the rector heard someone say, "'The church would be all right if that old mugwump was out of the pulpit.' It went to his heart like a barbed thorn and stayed there. You know, perhaps, how a remark of that sort can stay and rankle and make you wish you could hear it again to make sure of it, because perhaps you didn't hear it aright, and it was a mistake after all. Perhaps no one said it anyway. You ought to have written it down at the time. I have seen the dean take down the encyclopedia in the rectory and move his finger slowly down the pages of the letter M looking for Mugwump, but it wasn't there. I have known him, in his little study upstairs, turn over the pages of the Animals of Palestine, looking for a Mugwump, but there was none there. It must have been unknown in the greater days of Judea. So things went on from month to month, and from year to year, and the debt and the charges loomed like a dark and gathering cloud on the horizon. I don't mean to say that efforts were not made to face the difficulty and to fight it. They were. Time after time, the workers of the congregation got together and thought out plans for the extinction of the debt. But somehow, after every trial, the debt grew larger with each year and every system that could be devised turned out to be more hopeless than the last. They began, I think, with the endless chain of letters of appeal. You may remember the device, for it was all popular in clerical circles some ten or fifteen years ago. You got a number of people to write, each of them, three letters asking for ten cents from three each of their friends, and asking each of them to send on three similar letters. Three each 
from three each and three each more from each. Do you observe the wonderful ingenuity of it? Nobody, I think, has forgotten how the willing workers of the Church of England Church of Mariposa sat down in the vestry room in the basement with a pile of stationery three feet high sending out the letters. Some, I know, will never forget it. Certainly not Mr. Pupkin, the teller in the exchange bank, for it was here that he met Zena Pepperly, the judge's daughter, for the first time, and they worked so busily that they wrote out ever so many letters, eight or nine, in a single afternoon, and they discovered that their handwritings were awfully alike, which was one of the most extraordinary and amazing coincidences, you will admit, in the history of chirography. But the scheme failed. Failed utterly. I don't know why. The letters went out and were copied, broadcast, and recopied till you could see the Mariposa endless chain winding its way towards the Rocky Mountains. But they never got the ten cents. The willing workers wrote for it in thousands, but by some odd chance they never struck the person who had it. Then, after that, there came a regular winter of effort. First of all, they had a bazaar that was got up by the girls' auxiliary and held in the basement of the church. All the girls wore special costumes that were brought up from the city, and they had booths where there was every imaginable thing for sale. Pincushion covers and chair covers and sofa covers, everything that you can think of. If the people had once started buying them, the debt would have been lifted in no time. Even as it was, the bazaar only lost $20. After that, I think, was the magic lantern lecture that Dean Drone gave on Italy and her invaders. They got the lantern and the slides up from the city, and it was simply splendid. Some of the slides were perhaps a little confusing, but it was all there. The pictures of the dense Italian jungle and the crocodiles and the naked invaders with their invading clubs. It was a pity that it was such a bad night, snowing hard, and a curling match on, or they would have made a lot of money out of the lecture. As it was, the loss, apart from the breaking of the lantern, which was unavoidable, was quite trifling. I I can hardly remember all the things that there were after that. I recollect that it was always Mullins who arranged about renting the hall and printing the tickets and all that sort of thing. His father, you remember, had been at the Anglican College with Dean Drone, and though the rector was 37 years older than Mullins, he leaned upon him in matters of business as upon a staff. And though Mullins was 37 years younger than the dean, he leaned against him in matters of doctrine as against a rock. At one time, they got the idea that what the public wanted was not anything instructive, but something light and amusing. Mullins said that people love to laugh. He said that if you get a lot of people all together and get them laughing, you can do anything you like with them. Once they start to laugh, they are lost. So they got Mr. Dreary, the English literature teacher at the high school, to give an evening of readings from the great humorists from Chaucer to Adam Smith. They came mighty near to making a barrel of money out of that. 
if the people had once started laughing, it would have been all over with them. As it was, I heard a lot of them say that they simply wanted to scream with laughter. <laughs> they said they just felt like bursting into peals of laughter all the time. Even when in the more subtle parts, they didn't feel like bursting out laughing. They said they had all they could do to keep from smiling. They said they never had such a hard struggle in their lives not to smile. In fact, the chairman said, when he put the vote of thanks, that he was sure if people had known what the lecture was to be like, there would have been a much better turnout. But you see, all that the people had to go on was just the announcement of the name of the lecturer, Mr. Dreary, and that he would lecture on English humor. All seats, 25 cents. As the chairman expressed it himself, if the people had had any idea, any idea at all, of what the lecture would be like, they would have been there in hundreds. But how could they get an idea that it would be so amusing with practically nothing to go upon? After that attempt, things seemed to go from bad to worse. Nearly everybody was disheartened about it. What would have happened to the debt, or whether they would have ever paid it off, is more than I can say. If it hadn't occurred, that light broke in on Mullins in the strangest and most surprising way you can imagine. It happened that he went away for his bank holidays, and while he was away, he happened to be present in one of the big cities and saw how they went at it there to raise money. He came home in such a state of excitement that he went straight up from the Mariposa station to the rectory, valise and all, and he burst in one April evening to where the rural dean was sitting with the three girls beside the lamp in the front room, and he cried out, Mr. Drone, I've got it! I've got a way that'll clear the debt before you're a fortnight older! We'll have a whirlwind campaign in Mariposa! But stay. The change from the depth of depression to the pinnacle of hope is too abrupt. I must pause and tell you in another chapter of the whirlwind campaign in Mariposa. Chapter 5. The Whirlwind Campaign in Mariposa It was Mullins, the banker, who told Mariposa all about the plan of a whirlwind campaign and explained how it was to be done. He happened to be in one of the big cities when they were raising money by a whirlwind campaign for one of the universities, and he saw it all. He said he would never forget the scene on the last day of it, when the announcement was made that the total of the money raised was even more than what was needed. Oh, it was a splendid sight. The businessmen of the town all cheering and laughing and shaking hands, and the professors with the tears streaming down their faces, and the deans of the faculties, who had given money themselves, sobbing aloud. He said it was the most moving thing he ever saw. So, as I said, Henry Mullins, who had seen it, explained to the others how it was done. He said that, first of all, a few of the businessmen got together quietly, very quietly. Indeed, the more quietly, the better, and talked things over. Perhaps one of them would dine, just quietly, with another one, and discuss the situation. 
Then these two would invite a third man, possibly even a fourth, to have lunch with them and talk in a general way, even talk of other things part of the time. And so on, in this way, things would be discussed and looked at in different lights and viewed from different angles. And then, when everything was ready, they would go at things with a rush. A central committee would be formed, and subcommittees, with captains of each group and recorders and secretaries, and on a stated day, the whirlwind campaign would begin. Each day, the crowd would all agree to meet at some stated place and each lunch together, say, at a restaurant or at a club or at some eating place. They would go on every day, with the interest getting keener and keener, and everybody getting more and more excited, till presently the chairman would announce that the campaign had succeeded and there would be the kind of scene that Mullins had described. So, that was the plan that they set in motion in Mariposa. I don't wish to say too much about the whirlwind campaign itself. I don't mean to say that it was a failure. On the contrary, in many ways it couldn't have been a greater success. And yet, somehow, it didn't seem to work out just as Henry Mullins had said it would. It may be that there are differences between Mariposa and the larger cities that one doesn't appreciate at first sight. Perhaps it would have been better to try some other plan. Yet, they followed along the usual line of things closely enough. They began with the regular system of some of the businessmen getting together in a quiet way. First of all, for example, Henry Mullins came over quietly to Duff's rooms over the commercial bank with a bottle of rye whiskey, and they talked things over. And the night after that, George Duff came over quietly to Mullins' rooms over the exchange bank with a bottle of scotch whiskey. A few evenings after that, Mullins and Duff went together in a very unostentatious way with perhaps a, a couple of bottles of rye, to Pete Glover's room over the hardware store. And then all three of them went up one night with Ed Moore, the photographer, to Judge Pepperly's house under pretense of having a game of poker. The very day after that, Mullins and Duff and Ed Moore and Pete Glover and the judge got Will Harrison, the harness maker, to go out without any formality on the lake on the pretext of fishing. And the next night after that, Duff and Mullins and Ed Moore and Pete Glover and Pepperly and Will Harrison got Alf Trelawney, the postmaster, to come over, just in a casual way, to the Mariposa house after the night mail. And the next day, Mullins and Duff and... Ah, <laughs> oh, Shaw, you see at once how the thing has worked. There's no need to follow that part of the whirlwind campaign further but it just shows the power of organization. And all this time, mind you, they were talking things over and looking at things first in one light and, and then in another light. In fact, just doing as the big city men do when there's an important thing like this underway. So, after things had been got pretty well into shape in this way, Duff asked Mullins one night, straight out, if he would be chairman of the Central Committee. He sprung it on him, and Mullins had no time to refuse, but he put it to Duff straight whether he would be treasurer. 
and Duff had no time to refuse. That gave things a start, and within a week, they had the whole organization on foot. There was the Grand Central Committee and six groups or subcommittees of 20 men each and a captain for every group. They had it all arranged on the lines most likely to be effective. In one group, there were all the bankers, Mullins and Duff and Pupkin, with the cameo pin, and about four others. They had their photographs taken at Ed Moore's studio, taken in a line with a background of icebergs, a winter scene, and a pretty penetrating crowd they looked, I can tell you. After all, you know, if you get a crowd of representative bank men together in any financial deal, you've got a pretty considerable leverage right away. In the second group were the lawyers, Nivens and McCartney and the rest, about as level-headed a lot as you'd see anywhere. Get the lawyers of a town with you on a thing like this, and you'll find you've got a sort of brain power with you that you'd never get without them. Then there were the businessmen. There was a solid crowd for you. Harrison, the hardest maker, and Glover, the hardware man, and all that gang. Not talkers, perhaps, but solid men who can tell you to a nicety how many cents there are in a dollar. It's all right to talk about education and that sort of thing. But if you want driving power and efficiency, get businessmen. They're seeing it every day in the city, and it's just the same in Mariposa. Why, in the big concerns in the city, if they found out a man was educated, they wouldn't have him, wouldn't keep him there a minute. That's why the businessmen have to conceal it so much. Then, in the other teams, there were the doctors and the newspaper men and the professional men, like Judge Pepperly and Yodel the auctioneer. It was all organized so that every team had its headquarters, two of them in each of the three hotels, one upstairs and one down. And it was arranged that there would be a big lunch every day to be held in Smith's Calf, round the corner of Smith's Northern Health Resort and home of the Wissanotti Angler. But you know the place. The lunch was divided up into tables, with a captain for each table to see about things to drink. And, of course, all the tables were in competition with one another. In fact, the competition was the very life of the whole thing. It's just wonderful how these things run when they're organized. Take the first luncheon, for example. There they all were. Every man in his place, every captain at his post, at the top of the table. It was hard, perhaps, for some of them to get there. They had very likely to be in their stores and banks and offices till the last minute and then make a dash for it. It was the cleanest piece of teamwork you ever saw. You have noticed already, I am sure, that a good many of the captains and committee men didn't belong to the Church of England Church. Glover, for instance, was a Presbyterian, till they ran the picket fence of the man's two feet onto his property, and after that he became a free thinker. But in Mariposa, as I have said, everybody likes to be in everything, and naturally a whirlwind campaign was a novelty. Anyway, it would have been a poor business to keep a man out of the lunches merely on account of his religion. I trust that the day for that kind of religious bigotry is past. 
Of course, the excitement was when Henry Mullins, at the head of the table, began reading out the telegrams and letters and messages. First of all, there was a telegram of good wishes from the Anglican Lord Bishop of the Diocese to Henry Mullins, and calling him Dear Brother in Grace. The Mariposa Telegraph Office is a little unreliable, and it read, Dear Brother in Greece. <laughs> but that was good enough. The bishop said that his most earnest wishes were with them. Then Mullins read a letter from the mayor of Mariposa. Pete Glover was mayor that year, stating that his keenest desires were with them. And then one from the carriage company, saying that its heartiest goodwill was all theirs. And then one from the meatworks, saying that its nearest thoughts were next to them. Then he read one from himself, as head of the Exchange Bank, you understand, informing him that he had heard of his project and assuring him of his liveliest interest in what he proposed. At each of these telegrams and messages, there was round after round of applause, so that you could hardly hear yourself speak or give an order. But that was nothing to when Mullins got up again and beat on the table for silence and made one of those crackling speeches, just the way businessmen speak, the kind of speech that a college man simply can't make. I wish I could repeat it all. I remember that it began, Now, boys, you know what we're here for, gentlemen. And it went on just as good as that all through. When Mullins had done, he took out a fountain pen and wrote out a check for a hundred dollars, conditional on the fund reaching fifty thousand, and there was a burst of cheers all over the room. Just the moment he had done it, up sprang George Duff. You know the keen competition there is, as a straight matter of business between the banks and Mariposa. Up sprang George Duff, I say and wrote out a check for another hundred, conditional on the fund reaching seventy thousand. Well, you never heard such cheering in your life. And then, when Netley walked up to the head of the table and laid down a check for a hundred dollars, conditional on the fund reaching one hundred thousand, the room was in an uproar. A hundred thousand dollars! Just think of it! The figures fairly stagger one. To think of a hundred thousand dollars raised in five minutes in a little place like Mariposa. And even that was nothing. In less than no time, there was such a crowd round Mullins trying to borrow his pen all at once that his waistcoat was all stained with ink. Finally, when they got order at last and Mullins stood up and announced that the conditional fund had reached a quarter of a million, oh, the whole place was a perfect babble of cheering. Oh, these whirlwind campaigns are wonderful things. I can tell you, the committee felt pretty proud that first day. There was Henry Mullins looking a bit flushed and excited, with his white waistcoat and an American beauty rose, and with ink marks all over him from the check signing, and he kept telling them that he'd known all along that all was needed was to get the thing started, and telling again about what he'd seen at the university campaign and about the professors crying and wondering if the high school teachers would come down for the last day of the meeting's Looking back on the Mariposa whirlwind, I can never feel that it was a failure. After all, 
There is a sympathy and a brotherhood in these things when men work shoulder to shoulder. If you had seen the canvassers of the committee going round the town that evening, shoulder to shoulder, from the Mariposa House to the Continental and up to Mullins' room and over to Duff's, shoulder to shoulder, you'd have understood it. I don't say that every lunch was quite such a success as the first. It's not always easy to get out of the store if you're a busy man, and a good many of the whirlwind committee found that they had just time to hurry down and snatch their lunch and get back again. Still, they came and snatched it. As long as the lunches lasted, they came. Even if they had simply to rush it and grab something to eat and drink without time to talk to anybody, they came. No, no. It was not lack of enthusiasm that killed the whirlwind campaign in Mariposa. It must have been something else. I don't just know what it was, but I think it had something to do with the financial, the bookkeeping side of the thing. It may have been, too, that the organization was not quite correctly planned. You see, if practically everybody is on the committees, it is awfully hard to try to find men to canvas. And it is not allowable for the captains and the committee men to canvass one another because their gifts are spontaneous. So the only thing that the different groups could do was to wait around in some likely place, say the bar parlor of Smith's Hotel, in the hope that somebody might come in who could be canvassed. You might ask why they didn't canvass Mr. Smith himself. But of course, they had done that at the very start, as I should have said. Mr. Smith had given them $200 in cash, conditional on the lunches being held in the calf of his hotel. And it's awfully hard to get a proper lunch. I mean, the kind to which a bishop can express regret at not being there under $1.25. So Mr. Smith got back his own money, and the crowd began eating into the benefactions, and it got more and more complicated whether to hold another lunch in the hope of breaking even, or to stop the campaign. It was disappointing. Yes, in spite of all the success and the sympathy, it was disappointing. I didn't say it didn't do good. No doubt a lot of the men got to know one another better than ever they had before. I have myself heard Judge Pepperley say that after the campaign, he knew all of Pete Glover that he wanted to. There was a lot of that kind of complete satiety. The real trouble about the whirlwind campaign was that they never clearly understood which of them were the whirlwind and who were to be the campaign. Some of them, I believe, took it pretty much to heart. I know that Henry Mullins did. You could see it. The first day he came down to the lunch, all dressed up with the American beauty and the white waistcoat. The second day, he only wore a pink carnation and a gray waistcoat. The third day, he had on a dead daffodil and a cardigan undervest. And on the last day, when the high school teacher should have been there, he only wore his office suit and he hadn't even shaved. He looked beaten. It was that night that he went up to the rectory to tell the news to Dean Drone. 
It had been arranged, you know, that the rector should not attend the lunches so as to let the whole thing come as a surprise, so that all he knew about it was just scraps of information about the crowds at the lunch and how they cheered and all that. Once, I believe, he caught sight of the news packet with a two-inch headline, A Quarter of a Million, but he wouldn't let himself read further because it would have spoiled the surprise. I saw Mullins, as I say, go up the street on his way to Dean Drones. It was middle April, and there was ragged snow on the streets, and the nights were dark still and cold. I saw Mullins grit his teeth as he walked, and I knew that he held in his coat pocket his own check for the hundred, with the condition taken off it, and he said that there were so many skunks in Mariposa that a man might as well be in the head office in the city. The dean came out to the little gate in the dark. You could see the lamplight behind him from the open door of the rectory, and he shook hands with Mullins, and they went in together. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include The Scarlet Pimpernel, Vanity Fair, Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.